This morning I'd like to speak about the very important and powerful path factor of investigation and how we can hold that in relationship to the examination of what it means to to be. I'd also just like to welcome those of you who've arrived in the uh, last 24 hours or so. And uh, with your arrival, that's pretty much the, the last transition period of the retreat and so the next two weeks. It's really a time here to settle and really take the opportunity to go as deeply as it is possible to go into the truth of our experience. The practice of meditation, or translated from the Buddha's word, we translate meditation from the word bhavana, which means to cultivate, to develop, to bring into being. And it's essentially concerned with the cultivating, the developing, the bringing into being wholesome and beneficial qualities that lead to a enhancing of well-being, that lead to a opening and a freeing of the heart and of life itself. And so just to name really simply to begin with the three primary areas in which we develop wholesome qualities, towards focus, sometimes called concentration, collectedness I find is a more useful word, which leads towards deep peace, samatha, and we're cultivating this. Also cultivating openness, a sense of friendliness, a willingness to receive life and our experience and ourselves, just as it is, just as we are. And this orientation leads towards the deepening of loving-kindness and compassion. And there's also the cultivation of curiosity, of a sense of investigation, which leads to insight Vipassana, seeing deeply into the nature of experience and from which a deepening understanding of freedom ripens. So these qualities are really there in all forms of practice. We can emphasize one or another at given times if we're focusing on the development of samatha, of calm, if we're focusing on the development of loving kindness or friendliness or compassion, or if we're focusing on the development of insight. And this morning what I'd like to speak some more of is this this latter element. The Buddha spoke in his life of dozens, in fact dozens and dozens of wholesome beneficial qualities which you've probably encountered the names and the uh, hopefully the benefits of in your journeys. And in the one particular teaching where he he spoke of the the factors that conduce directly to awakening, that support awakening, that he he spoke of as the word was the the Bojanga, which always makes me think of the Bob Dylan song, Mr. Bojanga. Maybe he was a kind of awakened guy, I don't know. But um, there's seven factors that conduce to awakening that the Buddha spoke of. And he was once asked of these seven factors... 
and probably having named them, oh, I should make the uh, let you know what the seven are. So there's mindfulness, and then there's um, in the there's three qualities or factors that lead to a certain calming and stilling that are equanimity, tranquility, and uh, there's another one which has just dropped out of my mind, and three that lead to um, arousal of energy, which are investigation, joy and effort what's that other one I can't remember right in this moment maybe it come back to me but anyway he was once asked of the seven factors of awakening um, which of these is most proximate or directly leading to awakening and the Buddha said it was investigation it's that quality of looking with an interest to explore to understand Dhamma Vichaya in the Pali And so we can see spiritual practice from this perspective as essentially a deep inquiry and exploration into what what is it that's actually taking place here? What is this that we call being alive, that we call sitting here, that we call speaking or listening as we're doing right now? And as an inquiry coming from a sense of of real openness and honesty with ourselves, where we recognize that we do not yet know all there is to know about what it means to be here, what it means to exist, to be alive, that there's more to understand here. So the sense of exploring who am I or what is this, which is really what's the deepest truth that can be found in this experience, in this aliveness, in this moment, coming to this, not from a sense of trying to figure out the answers, but out of how it is that our heart naturally responds when we acknowledge that there's more yet to understand. There's more. And it's sort of so there's a, a quality that's... And I, I think the, the, the way I like the word curiosity, it has this sense of, this sense of sort of being drawn, being moved. And it's not just from the head. It's not just an intellectual curiosity but that something in us is really interested to know. And yet, it's not always the case that that's foremost or primary in our minds. We sometimes lose touch with that. And there's a, an ancient prayer that I think speaks to this dilemma. It says, protect me from the cowardice that shrinks from new truth." from the laziness that's content with half-truth and from the arrogance which believes it knows all truth. And so something about that, that sense of some courage is involved. Some courage is involved to enter into the territory where we maybe do not yet know all there is to be known. Certain holding back we might find at times. There's a there's a degree of commitment required because we can easily get lazy and be content with, oh yeah, I've, I've had a few good insights. If we've been here for a while now, feeling kind of steady, things flowing along, yeah, it's pretty good. I can, you know, I can sort of sign off on this one and just enjoy the ride for the rest of the time. Or the sense of, at times, and there can be a beautiful sense of discovery of really understanding things and how precious and important that is. And yes, of course. And yet, 
It's almost like I, in, in terms of the uh, the grammar or the syntax, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but it's like, don't ever put a full stop after an insight. Three dots, dot, dot, dot. It's like it's not finished there. It might look like it in the moment of understanding something, but don't put a full stop in it. Dot, dot, dot. It could really be true exactly, and that might be all there is to it, but don't be too quickly sure of that. And so that leaves us in a space of openness, of willingness, of receptivity. And the practice in that is essentially to connect with what's actual, with what's real. We see how the tendency to dwell in the past, to dwell in the future, to relate to life and to experience through images and through concepts, which is essentially what past and future are. They're concepts and constructs. If we if we don't relate so much to those, or we're not using those as the basis for establishing what is most real, what is most true, there's a deeper quality that's possible in the sense of being grounded, a sense of being connected, a sense of being present, that really invites investigation, that calls to us, I think very naturally, very powerfully, that calls to us to look beyond appearances, to be willing to see more deeply than we have so far been able to see. Some years ago I was sitting in meditation early one morning. Some of you will know the story. but You can imagine you haven't heard it before. I was sitting in meditation early one morning on a cold, frosty winter morning. And having finished my, the time I had for practice, I opened my eyes and in front of me on the windowsill, I saw the snail. It was about, I guess, five or six feet, two metres in front of me. And there was a snail on the windowsill. And just coming out of the, the sitting, it was like, oh, wow, amazing. It's a sense of interest. And then, then my mind started to click into gear, as the mind does, and that sense of, oh, what's the snail doing in here? How'd it get here? And I was, oh, the snail's in here because the window's open. And the window was open because the paint had been peeling. And so I'd had to shave it with a plane. It, it, the paint had peeled, the wood had swollen, it didn't close anymore. So we couldn't close it. So, okay, I trimmed it with a plane, took a bit of wood off, then repainted it, but couldn't close it because the paint was still wet. So left it open. Even though it was really cold, the window was open. So, oh, the snail's coming through the window, you know. Took about a half a second for all that to just go through my mind. And I thought, why did the snail come in? And I said, it's cold out there. It's probably going to die if it stays out in that frosty weather. I don't think snails live through frosts. So it's come in to get away from the cold. And then I thought, but there's nothing for it to eat in here. It's going to starve to death. And I, I started to get really concerned about this little creature because I could see it there, the, the beautiful swirl, spiral pattern on its shell. And there's little eyes on stalks sort of out there in front of its, its sort of soft, tender, translucent, moist body. And there's this, this whole welling up of concern because if I put it back outside, it's going to freeze. If I let it stay here, it's going to starve. What, what am I going to do? And then I had this idea. I know, my neighbor's greenhouse. I can put it in my neighbor's greenhouse. Not being a gardener, I didn't think too much about the... Uh, the ethics of that or the potential impact on the, the greenhouse. It was just like, I was just so happy that I'd come up with a solution for this poor little creature. 
And so I got up and reached out towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving (laughs) and a little spiral that was sitting on the windowsill. And there was a moment where I realized that as I reached towards this snail whose life I'd been concerned about, whose problems I'd felt for and whose, you know, circumstances I'd actually found a solution to, never existed in the way that I imagined. Something that appeared just was no longer. And that sense of questioning, of exploring, of looking deeply to see how quickly we form an image based on a very surface appearance, upon a very unexamined impression. And we go on to start to think about it and become concerned about it and try and save it or sort it or whatever. But if we stay more fully present in the experience and noticing whatever images or impressions arise, start to question the conclusions we're forming around them or about them, conclusions about the world, conclusions about ourselves, just starting to wonder, is that really so? Do I know that to be absolutely true? And so there's a caring in it, there's an interest in it, but it's not seeking for some intellectual answer. It's more just to be interested because there's something very true in the interest itself. There's something very alive. There's actually something very awake in that sense of interest itself when it comes from our depth of care, not from a need to organize the world into an easy or familiar and recognizable pattern or model which is kind of more the need of the intellect, of that often anxiety-driven mind. But what is the truth of this existence? Who am I? What is this? What does it mean to be alive? These are the questions that lie at the heart of spiritual exploration, of spiritual practice. And it's important at times to just bring them back into focus, allow them to work on us and in us and with us, And to not accept too quickly or perhaps not accept at all the answers that we find, the explanations that we're given. Whether it be the explanations of religions that say that this is what it's all about and, you know, you get this body and in some cases if you sort of do the right thing with it, you get to go somewhere nice afterwards and if you do the wrong thing with it, you go somewhere pretty unpleasant afterwards. Or in other religious models, you get this body, and you know you're going to get a whole lot of them. So you um, kind of want to work out how to how to use it, and you know whether we have ideas of heaven or hell or ongoing rebirth, we don't really know about any of that. Those are ideas, concepts. They might be useful in certain ways. For some of us, we might feel they're quite irrelevant and meaningless. And yet we can equally look at the models proposed by modern science that in some expressions at least suggest, well, you know, when you're dead, that's it. Turn up here as the result of a rather fortunate chemical accident involving a puddle and some sunlight and uh, a little bit of evolutionary development following on from that. We turn up and then we're here for a while and then when we're gone, that's it. And, you know, that's just as much a fantasy as the idea that there's some place up there where people are floating around with wings and 
a guy with a big beard sitting on a golden chair. Now, it might be like that. I'm not saying it's impossible. But it's a fantasy if we believe we know for sure that that's how it is. And likewise, the idea that there's nothing other than this. That's also just an idea. It's also a way in which we can find some consolation in a certainty based on knowing there's nothing. And that certainty is just as consoling, it seems, for some, as the certainty that there's something. And neither of those positions are really sustainable in the face of a genuine inquiry, in the honouring of a humility that recognises I don't know. I really don't know. So that we have a saying, and I'm not sure where it originated in Western European culture, it says, curiosity killed the cat. You've probably, most of you, heard it. It suggests that it's a really bad idea to be curious. In fact, it could be fatal. Interestingly, I, some little while ago, came across a, a fuller version of it that perhaps has been lost. I don't quite know the origins exactly, but it says... Curiosity killed the cat and satisfaction brought it back. And I rather like that. Even though one doesn't quite know exactly what it means. It's like there's something that's being spoken to there about the danger or the risks of curiosity. And yet the cat that's you know embodying, I like cats, um, that embodies that quality, it seems... And certainly my cat does. Um, it seems like it puts itself in danger as a result of that. And yet there's something that may be to be found. Satisfaction. Interesting. Also that it killed the cat. So the cat died, huh? But then it came back. How did that happen? Satisf- curiosity killed the cat. And satisfaction brought it back. I actually think there's some profound spiritual teaching in that proverb. (laughs) Once one has both parts of it to reflect on. There's this, you know, fear we have of exploring, of going beyond the known, entering the unknown. Those old, you know, maps of uh, medieval sort of images of the world, and there's the bits we know and the bits on the edge that's got, you know, here will be dragons. It's like nobody's been there, so there must be dragons there. But maybe... Maybe it's not quite like that, or maybe the dragons aren't quite so dangerous as we might imagine. In fact, in other sort of systems, dragons are mythical transformative beings. But here, coming back down to the more simple nitty-gritty of what happens when we're, you know, so to speak, plonked or parked on a cushion here at Gaia House for days, weeks, months. It can feel like lifetimes sometimes, and that's, you know, just between breakfast and lunch. What's actually happening here? One way or another, in any number of different forms, the fundamental thing that's happening here is that we're encountering experience of sight, Sound, smell, taste, touch, the five physical senses. And we're encountering the contents of the mind, which in 
Dharma teachings we understand as the sixth sense, the, the mind so far as the capacity to register thoughts and mental impressions, images. And that's what's happening. If we really come down to it, that's all that's been happening. Anything you can point to was anything you could experience, have experienced and will experience, anything you're experiencing right now, including these words and their impact or lack of impact on you, it seems is simply either a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a mental impression of a thought or an image. There's nothing else going on. Just that. Just that. If we look at this, if we feel into this, if we start to become curious about this and not take it for granted, that this is just what's happening, we might find ourselves wondering or just noticing, first of all, the tendency to imagine that this is me. It's me that's doing it. It's me that's having it or it's happening to me, all of this. And yet, if we look a little further, we'll notice, well, that's just another thought. And it provides a certain feeling of reassurance or possibly a feeling of anxiety, depending on what it is that's happening. And that's just some sensations. So even that sense of it's me and how that affects what I'm calling me for now is also just a sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought or image. Just that. It's not something different than all those other things. It's not that there's something or someone to whom all that's happening, it seems. At least not in the way we imagine, not in the way the mind conceives. And yet when we're not aware of that, much of our energy and our focus is going into trying to use all those experiences, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts and images. Sorry if I say them rather quickly. It's probably a line I've repeated many times. But it's a bit like that, isn't it? da 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 all this experience just keeps on pouring in. We tend to take those and use them as a way of somehow trying to establish a sense of who we are. And not just to establish it, but to somehow give it some particular sense of meaning or shape or validity. And how particularly we tend to apply certain kinds of experience in a way that gives us a sense of somehow enhancing or inflating a sense of me. And in other ways, other experiences we use in a way that has the effect of somehow deflating or diminishing the sense or how we sense or what we sense ourselves to be. Not necessarily diminishing the sense of self per se, but the image that we have of ourselves. And so experience is often related to primarily as whether it enhances or diminishes, whether it offers something to or whether it threatens our sense of who we are or our very existence. And there's this, this process in which we try and build up the sense of me as a way of creating something in order to have a sense of clarity, of security, of certainty, of something solid and fixed in which and through which we can orient to meet this life in which all this experience is pouring in, is pouring in as it is constantly and has been for as long as we can remember. Trying to somehow have a framework within which to, to meet or grapple with that or to make sense of it. 
And so there's the sense of building up a, a me who has this experience and does this kind of thing and doesn't do that sort of thing and has these thoughts but doesn't really have those thoughts and certainly doesn't want to have certain other thoughts. We have all that going on. And we, we do this to protect ourselves for security in some ways, it seems. And yet, in that very process, there's a, a sense of becoming caught, being bound, being imprisoned within that sense of this is me that seems to be linked to the, the content of our experience, to whatever it is that has happened, that is happening, and that perhaps will happen. And it's so. It's, I find it really interesting to reflect on this, to see how we're drawn and pulled so strongly to try and establish a sense of me that feels okay, a positive self-image, something that gives us a reflection that we feel comfortable with or flattered by or at least hope that others will extend appreciation towards us or acceptance for and certainly not judgment or attacking. So that, you know, if we have a good sitting... And whatever we think of or mean by good, we suddenly we can sort of feel good about ourselves, like I'm okay. And gosh, I hope someone noticed that I didn't move for 45 minutes. You know, I noticed. I hope someone else noticed. It always seems to be related that way. It's a bit disappointing if everyone else had their eyes shut. Or, you know, we, we go to lunch and we're able to be really restrained, restrained take a nice sort of modest portion how good we feel. It's like, wow, yeah, I'm really mindful and renunciate and, you know, and that sense of me that feels good about it. Of course we can honour that there's some wholesome qualities in that. But notice there's more than that often going on. Or a period of continuity where we're really mindful through the mealtime, through taking some rest or going for a sort of an informal walk in the afternoon, coming to the next sitting and the walking and really being there when we're tying up our shoes. And all of that's great, wonderful. And there's that little bit that sometimes just watching going, hey, I'm doing really well, this is great, wow, cracked it, you know. This is sustained practice, that's what they were talking about, you know. And that sense of me pops up, holding on, making up a sense of a positive image from that. So like, Ah, great. And something in us just, this is what I was looking for. This experience that's happening now is what I was wanting. But of course, we equally experience, and for some of us we may notice a predominant tendency one way or the other, but equally as we notice that tendency to sort of try or to be involved in the constructing of a sort of positive self-image, we equally notice the constructing of a negative self-image, the way in which we're starting to talk about the sense of me in quite different terms, where we have a bad sitting and it's like, oh wow, I really just couldn't do it. I couldn't stay still, I couldn't stay present, I couldn't really even remember what the heck I was doing here. Um, you know, and it must have been so obvious to the people sitting next door that I was just gone out there, you know. And a whole sense of dejection, frustration, sense of failure can just arise on the fact that the mind was restless for 40 minutes. Probably no one in this room hasn't had the experience of a mind that was restless for 40 minutes. But somehow we make that into something. Or, you know, we go into the dining room with good intentions for moderation and we walk out with a plate that's sort of this deep in food and we think, from, oh no, oh no, I've, I've, I've lost it. But then we forgot because this looks good and we sit down and we eat it all. We're sitting there groaning at the end of the... Oh, 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 oh no! And and not only is it uncomfortable, but it's like then this whole thing. Oh, 
I'm complete, you know, completely wasting this opportunity. I'm just no good at this thing. It's like this whole sense of me arises as the failure, as the complete greedy pig who's got no place in a renunciate retreat centre practice, you know. Or spaced out again, again, lost it, got from here to there um, without knowing that I'd done it. You know, and it's like the sort of, whereas the first one, it's more like, ah, this is more like, ah. It's sort, of feel, it's sort of like something painful happens when we create an image out of that experience of ourself. And in the believing of it, there's, a, there's, there's something that happens in the heart that's, that's not at ease. Whichever image we create is not at ease because we're constantly engaged in this process because we can't rest in any place we come to. We can't rest in having become good because the next experience can negate it. We don't rest in the sense of, well, at least now who I know who I am, a hopeless meditator, that's me. No, because something in us protests and rails against it. says, but no, no, I've got the potential for more than that. And yes, you do. We do. It's like we can't actually believe our images. Seductive and entrancing as they are, we can't really believe them. Because if we could, we wouldn't need to keep working on them. We wouldn't need to keep building them, supporting them, protecting them, defending them. And that's telling us something about the nature of them. They're not substantial. If they were something substantial, we'd have got them together by now. We'd be done with that. But we're not. The only way we can kind of leave them unattended is to be completely unconscious continuously. And if we could really do that, then actually we would find our images become permanent. But you think it's hard work trying to be conscious and be mindful? Try being absolutely unconscious and not for a moment mindful. Try and do it for five minutes. Really try. You might succeed. Try and do it all day? There's no way. I'm not suggesting that you should really try and be mindless all day. But it's actually harder than we imagine to not notice what's going on. And so notice when you're trying to reinforce or re-establish the sense of me, of I am like this, this is who I am, this is what I am, this is how I am. Sometimes they're a bit more subtle and we more just say, this is how all those people are, this is how they are. And we don't notice that the reflection or the inner position that we're in is that I'm not like that, I'm different. And that's actually an identity for ourselves too. By saying, they're all like that, we're unconsciously saying to ourselves, I'm different. Well, we could be saying I'm the same as that, but often it's that. But whatever, we're still taking a position, even when we're talking about other people in that way. So the experiences, the history, the roles, the different tendencies and qualities we may encounter, noticing all of that as it arises into consciousness. And it's important that we notice it. Of course, we're being asked to notice all of that, yes. And yet to investigate, what am I doing with this? What am I doing with this? The Buddha suggested, the Buddha invited and encouraged us to question, to investigate, to say, is this experience changing? 
Is it staying the same? And when he would ask his, um, his followers, the monks, the nuns, the lay people, at least those ones that weren't, you know, that had some practice understanding, they're usually the ones that get quoted, not always. They would say, no, no, of course things are changing. We see things are changing. So, so are they ch- if they're changing, does it make sense to take them as who you are? And they would say, no. It doesn't. You say, that's correct, understanding. If they're changing, do they give you satisfaction? Can you get lasting satisfaction in them? No. If they don't give you lasting satisfaction, does it make sense to take them as you, who you are? No. And yes, that's the correct understanding. The Buddha would affirm that. Reflection. So, if we don't take our experience as what we are, if we don't take hold of an idea that says, I am existent, somehow solid, me, and we equally don't take an idea because there's just another idea that says, well, no, I don't have a self, I'm not really here, I'm some kind of empty phenomenon rolling on that doesn't really exist, though doesn't really like it if it gets hit by a hard object. It's a classic response in the Zen tradition when the student turns up and says, ah, I'm empty, there's nothing here. The Zen master hits them with a stick and if there's nothing there, that shouldn't be a problem, should it? So there's something here. Clearly, we know that. But the the taking of a position in that is what we're asked to really contemplate, reflect on and investigate both the process of how and why we take positions, which I've kind of touched on. There's really a lot more to be said there, but a large amount of understanding what moves us, what pushes us, what pulls us, is understanding that process. And that's something we're doing here. But seeing that often a lot of the why of it is it's it's like to give us a sense of security in the midst of an uncertain world, to create some, in a way, apparent island or... Um, haven of refuge in the midst of flux and flow of constant transition and transformation and yet if we don't do that if we have the courage if we feel the truth of the heart's movement and call to just perhaps for a little while put that down that urge, that drive and see what that might offer to us, see what that might reveal. This is really the foundation for, or the invitation to enter into a state of noble uncertainty. A noble uncertainty that's very different from the kind of undermining sceptical doubt where the mind is busy going oh, I don't know about this, I don't know about that don't think this works, not sure if that works not sure if I work all of that sort of stuff that's very different which we've, I think Christina might have spoken about that earlier in the retreat as one of the hindrances sceptical doubt but this noble uncertainty the sense of really confronting what it is that we don't know that we can't really know with our intellect because our intellect can only know a certain range of experience. And yet, from that place of noble uncertainty, if we, if we allow it to 
to focus and to orient towards the the sense of of interest that we have in our life to understand to know more deeply what is true it can start to really work on our being in the silence in the stillness in the openness and in the invitation that that noble uncertainty invites it's like who am i who, who am i the sense of me that's so often unquestioned so often clearly established according to my social roles and functions my perceptions my oh, what is this this experience this whole practices and traditions based in just staying with those questions wholeheartedly who am i or what is this what is this what is it What is the state of presence, of openness that's sincerely asking that question but isn't looking for answers here, isn't looking for reassurance or some kind of model that will therefore allow me to manipulate what it is that's here or control it or position myself in a relationship to it but that's really just interested in knowing what's true and letting that be what is most important in this place. And this is something that for me has been a very powerful part of my practice. Something that at times, not at all times by any means, but at times has really touched me in ways that I feel immense gratitude for. And I can remember still very clearly a period of time when I was practicing practicing in, in Budgaya in India in the monastery there and just some time in the middle of the night when I was sitting in the stillness and the quiet and with some companions as yourselves as you are here just this question just somehow exploding into my consciousness who am I? and in that questioning really knowing that I didn't know like It was like a cannon or an explosive charge going off, not just in consciousness, but in the whole psychophysical experience. The whole thing was just like, I don't know. And the response to that isn't that that's a problem or that I need an answer, but it's just, what is it? Who am I? What is this? And there's something profound and powerful about the depth of that question that... reveals as being itself as being unanswerable by the intellect. The mind is humbled by this question. The mind needs, the intellectual mind needs to be humbled by this question. But the heart responds to it. The deeper knowing of our life, the deeper wisdom of our existence responds to the question because there's some truth There's some profound and deep truth in the not knowing, in the acknowledging that the mind doesn't know this. We're aligning ourselves with something that runs 
in a deeper movement than the surface of the mind upon which the thoughts dance, not dissimilar to the waves that flow on the surface of the ocean, create storm and equally calm, while in the depths of the ocean there's a a stillness and a flow at the same time. And so something in us can start to drop into that, drop more deeply, coming into contact with that, which I'm calling the heart's recognition of what's true and its response to that. And again, those are just words, but that's what I'm calling it for now. And in that response, in that recognizing, what do we know? What do we start to see? And it's a knowing that isn't just of the mind, the intellect, although of course it can be reflected in the mind. Wisdom can be reflected in the mind equally as delusion. So, of course, what appears in the mind is not to be rejected, but to be examined, to be explored. And we see, perhaps, or we sense, we may recognize that this that we call life, that we call being alive. It's a process, it's a flow. There's something dynamic, moving, happening, unfolding that me that was a child, that was a baby, that was a child, that was a teenager, that was a young adult is now, I guess, middle-aged. And that's for sure happening. We can see just the journey of the body. And I've just started to notice that I need a little bit more light or the paper a little bit closer or further away. That didn't used to happen. And it's like, yeah, that's happening. You know, at some point I'll turn up with something I need to help me see what's scribbled on this piece of paper. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. There's this movement. And in some ways, things are completely different, and yet in other ways they seem remarkably the same than at any point I can remember or reflect back on. And yet if I were to ask, or if you were to question yourself, where are all the thoughts that you've had in your life up till now? And there have been a lot of them. Thousands and thousands, if not millions and billions of thoughts we've had. Where are they now? So important they were, so meaningful, so helpful, so painful. The whole range, where are they? Gone. Gone. Can't be found. Not one of mine or yours exist beyond their brief duration. And where are the thoughts that we're going to have? Because you better believe it, we're going to have some more. I'm going to have some more, you're going to have some more, and there are going to be hundreds and thousands of them. And I know you might be hoping it won't happen on the next sitting, but who knows? But where are they now? All those thoughts that may be going to come or not. They don't exist. They, they, they aren't anywhere. They're not in a cupboard lined up waiting to come in to the mind and say, mm, my turn, listen to me. Likewise, our body, the body that we had, is gone. We have this one, but it's in the, bus- in the process of disappearing. And the body that we're going to have in 10 years' time will have almost nothing of this one left in it. Almost nothing of this will be still there in 10 years. But we'll still be walking around, probably. Not for sure, of course. But if we are walking around, we'll be walking around in a completely different body. 
Just a few neurons and a few bits of calcium in the bones will probably still be there, but probably not as many neurons as we'd have hoped for. So if we see this as something that flows, because it's flowing, we see the truth of change. We see the fluidity, the unstoppable fluidity of experience. Then perhaps we could reflect on the image or the metaphor of a river as a useful way to perhaps understand what's being pointed to here. If we look at a river, we see the water's changing. It's, you know, the dart just near where I live is flooded at the moment, wild and chocolate-coloured, full of golden autumn leaves that it's just picked up from the banks as it's burst them in a few places. Not seriously. And we might wonder, as we see the water, it's up, it's down, sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's muddy, sometimes it's warm, not often. Usually it's cold and sometimes very cold. We see how it changes. So what is the river? What makes this a river? What, what is it? We could be asking, what's the nature of a river? Is it the water? Well, it's not the water because you have a bucket of water, I wouldn't call it a river. Is it the bed? Is it the shape and the form and the frame of it? in which it's contained, sort of, but if you take the water away, I wouldn't call that a river either. But perhaps what's most fundamental here is that the water isn't, sorry, the river isn't just the water. It isn't just the bed. And yet it's not apart from the river, water, and the the river isn't something apart from the water flowing in the bed. That's how we know what the river is. And perhaps more fundamentally than any drop of water, because the water's not the same either. The bed's not the same. One day to the next, one moment to the next. It keeps changing. But more fundamentally is the sense of the flow, the movement. It's like that's what makes a river a river, is this, this movement, this flow. And it's a movement that's unstoppable, in which water moves to the ocean. It moves down, essentially. The ocean is just the lowest point. Water, by the effect of gravity and on the topic of not knowing, gravity is not something science has any understanding of why it happens. All we know is that it does happen. And as a result, things move towards each other. And things that are fluid flow down. So water flows, moves to the ocean. Do you think the water questions, or we would need to question, how does the water get back to the ocean? How does it do that? If we're sitting here engaged in trying to make that happen, would that make sense? Because if we just step back a little bit from our assumptions and our conceptions about what it means to be. There may be a way in which the sense of what's here, of what's true, reveals itself as flow, as movement. From one perspective, that's what's happening. We can see that existence flows unstoppably like water from birth through the phases and stages of life 
to death, inevitably. And there's no way around that movement. We see that water is there in the ocean, evaporates into the air, falls as rain, becomes trickles and streams and rivers and flows into the ocean again. It's not bound to any of these. It's not defined by any of these. Not separate from the depth of the ocean. Nor in any way apart from the surface. Our bodies are over 90% water. They may be engaged in something rather similar to a river. In fact, once encountered, the, for me, I found a rather amusing quote that said that uh, human beings were something invented by water in order to move itself around. If you see how much time human beings spend moving water around, it makes a lot of sense. And at a deeper level, actually, much of what we're doing when we do whatever we do is moving, in my case, about 60-something kilograms of water around. And yet somehow we seem to identify with the water. We identify, not, not in terms of the water in our body, but the, the flow, the movement, the experience, the things that show up, the different shapes and forms that life takes. And so far as we identify with our experience of mind, of body, we identify with something which is born and is bound to die. if we take birth in our experience, if we claim this or any conceiving in regard to it as defining what we are or as defining what we're not. Because if we take a position that says, I am this, we're bound. We take birth in that. And if we take a position that says, I'm not that, no, I'm a good Buddhist, I don't have a self. If we take that position, we take birth there as well. Anything that is born is bound to die. This is really a reality that lies at the heart of the question, that focuses, I think, the question and the, the urgency, the passion, perhaps, the, the ardency of our inquiry into what is it that's happening here? Who am I? What is this? What's going on? to really let that touch us, to work on us. A uh, lovely senior Buddhist monk, Ajahn Amaro, was based, well, actually up until recently was based in America, has recently come back to the UK, um, was once asked at a conference what the uh, Buddhist view on, I think it was something like contraception, sterilization and abortion. And uh, it was a pretty loaded question, as you might imagine. Um, and he, he replied with a, something of a twinkle in his eye. He said, well, actually, as far as I can tell, the entire Buddhist teaching is concerned with avoiding rebirth. And so it kind of turns all of that a little bit on its head. What is rebirth control? Because in some ways that's what we're practicing here. 
rebirth control. It's quite ethical. Nobody gets hurt. Staying with the image of water, I find it interesting to contemplate the uh, experience that might take place for a wave if it should be sitting on the ocean and suddenly become self-aware. And it would probably be just initially kind of enjoying the trip. It's quite fun, I would imagine. It's a bit like surfing. If you're a wave, you just sort of cruise along. And there's probably a whole bunch of other waves doing the same thing. They're all heading in the same direction, generally at least in any given location. And imagine if at some point this wave should, looking out into the um, distance, start to notice that there's a bit of sort of a fuzzy area out there and start to see something's happening. And then actually as it gets closer, start to notice that the waves in front of it are hitting the shore. And not just hitting the shore, but it seems like they're being annihilated in that encounter. And the, the wave would start thinking, hey, well, this seemed like quite a nice journey, but I'm not sure I want to do that. Um, you know, where's the reverse gear on this thing? Oh, my gosh, it doesn't have one. It's still going in only one direction. And it could really get quite anxious and worried, I would imagine, if I put myself in the place of a self-aware wave who didn't understand what was happening. And, of course, we could watch and we've seen, perhaps, the wave would roll on in. And just like every other wave, it would crash on the shore. And it would seem be annihilated. But what happens to the water when the wave hits the shore? What happens to the water? It's unharmed. In no meaningful way could we say the water needs to be worried about hitting the shore. So if we were to let go of our ideas and our identities, if we were to allow ourselves, our ideas and identities that define who we are or who we are not, just as importantly, what this is or what this is not. And to really allow ourselves to rest in the simple seeing of life unfolding, the simple knowing and presence in the very midst, in no way removed from, distant or apart from all of this that's taking place, and yet not creating or buying in to any image not holding on to any perception or conception of all of this. (coughs) Not being it, not becoming it, not being in any way apart from it either. We may... In the silence, in the deep stillness of the heart, more fully and deeply understand that it is not we who are moving through life, but life 
moving through the truth that we are. That movement is unstoppable. That truth is unmoving. To rest in this, to know this, is really one of the deep blessings of Dharma practice, one of the deep blessings of life. and really an invitation to us all. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments in the silence. <coughs> 